0: Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6 through 7. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness. From this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Grass withers, the flower fades, and the word of our God stands forever. So we've been talking this year for the Advent season. We're going through a very familiar portion of scripture with these four titles attributed to this coming son. We see there at the beginning of verse 6, right? For to us a child is born, to us a son is given. Isaiah writing several hundred years before the birth of Christ has this Prophecy, and there are many of these in the book of Isaiah. I said last week that sometimes Isaiah is referred to as the fifth Gospel because there 's so much reference to Jesus in Isaiah. You can look at famous passages like isaiah fifty three isaiah seven fourteen this passage here in Isaiah nine and many others that go through this and, and they give these prophetic uh, views uh, of of the life of this coming messiah, this coming Son of David, this coming king. And one of those sections is we're looking at for Advent this year with these four titles. Given to this coming Son, Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And last week, we, we looked at and thought on the title of Wonderful Counselor. And so then moving on, we're going to spend all our time this morning just thinking about these two words of what it means that this coming Messiah is going to be called Mighty God. What does it mean that this Son, this coming Messiah, is going to be Mighty, called Mighty God. And the first thing we have to really think about when we realize that this coming son, this child who's going to be given, is going to be called Mighty God, is the uniqueness and the seriousness of calling anyone God. (laughs) To call someone Mighty God is a big deal. Uh, we, don't, we don't have a, a polytheistic view of the world that has multiple gods. And so you might say someone is a god, this is a, having thousands of different gods. Uh, Judaism, Christianity coming out of Judaism is a monotheistic religion. We believe in one true God. And we see that right in the Ten Commandments. They start off with have no other gods beside me. You're not to make any other idol, you're, you're to have one God. That is all that there is to to be had. We have to realize the serious charge of blasphemy of calling anyone or any someone God or anything God who is not God. That is what the, the Ten Commandments are emphasizing. You are to have no other gods besides God. God is adamant in his word that there are no other gods beside him. If you're still in Isaiah, flip back to Isaiah chapter 45. Chapter 45, verse 5, found on page 720, say God says this, I am the Lord, and there is no other. Besides me, there is no God. He alone is God. But this Son who is coming is going to be called mighty God. And so there's some a lot of there's a it's a serious thing going on here that we would ever take this descendant, this son, and call him mighty God. This is a serious thing to call someone God, but this word God is then modified by the word mighty. He's going to be called mighty God, not just a God. He's going to be called mighty God. this is a way of distinguishing who it is that you're talking about. Of course, they had lived at this time in a very polytheistic culture. There were, there were many uh, pagan societies around, cultures around that had various different gods, but the Jewish faith, they, they worshiped the mighty God, or maybe we would say almighty God. You've heard the, the phrase in church, almighty God, that he is the God who is almighty. He is the mighty God. It's a way of distinguishing who it is that you're talking about. He's not some God just of man's creation or some God who can be tricked or outsmarted or some God you have to kind of appease with, with, you know, and kind of slight this way so that you can get him to work on your behalf on this angle and this God you're kind of playing to, to get to be on your side. No, this God is, he's the mighty God. He does, he does what he wants. He's this, this, this son is going to come and he's going to be called the mighty God. Well, this is a way that they would refer to God in the Old Testament as the mighty God. This is one of the terms the Bible uses to describe God and his working in history. So in your pew Bible there, we're going to do a little Bible work this morning. Go with me back to Deuteronomy chapter 10. Deuteronomy chapter 10 We're going to look at verses 14 through 22. I'd like for you to follow along if it's not too much for you. Grab out your pew Bible and read for yourself. Darren's not making this stuff up. Deuteronomy chapter 10, verses 14 through 22. Behold, to the Lord your God belong heaven and the heaven of heavens, the earth with all that is in it. Yet the Lord set his heart in love on your fathers and chose their offspring after them, you above all peoples, as you are this day. Circumcise, therefore, the foreskin of your heart and be no longer stubborn. For the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God who is not partial and takes no bribe. He executes justice for the fatherless and the widow, and he loves the sojourner, giving him food and clothing. Love the sojourner, therefore, for you are sojourners in the land of Egypt. You shall fear the Lord your God. You shall serve him and hold fast to him, and by his name you shall swear. He is your praise. He is your God who has done for you these great and terrifying things that your eyes have seen. Your fathers went down to Egypt, 70 persons, and now the Lord your God has made you as numerous as the stars of heaven. There is no, when we, when we call God the mighty God, we're, we're given that very specific title there. He is the God for whom there are no circumstances too tough for. There's nothing too difficult for this mighty God. We know when Joseph you know, gets sold into slavery, goes down to Egypt, and then later his brothers come and they bring Jacob. And all of Israel comes down to Egypt. They were 70 people at that time. But then when they leave in the Exodus with Moses, they are too numerous of people to even count And as they wander around and go and take the promised land out of these 70 people, by God's might and his power, because he chose your fathers, as verse 15 says, chose, set his love on your fathers and chose their offspring, God, no circumstance was too difficult for this mighty God to perform what he wanted to perform. Flip back to to Nehemiah, Ezra, Nehemiah, Nehemiah chapter 9. This is on page 476 of your pew Bible. Our Nehemiah chapter 9, verse 32. Now therefore, Nehemiah, an interesting time period of, of coming back and rebuilding Jerusalem, the temple area, Nehemiah. But verse 32 of, of chapter 9 says, Now therefore, our God, the great, the mighty, the awesome God, who keeps covenant and steadfast love that they're praying to him. Now, therefore, our God, the great, the mighty, the awesome God, who keeps covenant and steadfast love, let not all the hardship seem little to you that has come upon us, upon our kings, our princes, our priests, our prophets, our fathers, and all your people since the time of the kings of Assyria until this day. Yet you have been righteous and all that has come upon us, for you have dealt faithfully and we have acted wickedly. And there's quite a bit more there. But this this prayer to the mighty God is a God who has seen all these things go on, seen all these things happen. And there's no obstacle that has stood in the way from this God, even their own wickedness. There is no obstacle that has stood in the way of this mighty God from accomplishing exactly what he wanted to accomplish. He is the mighty God. Jeremiah, a prophet after Isaiah. So go past Isaiah to Jeremiah 32. Is page 785 of your pew Bible. Jeremiah chapter 32. Jeremiah says this prayer. Verse 17, Ah, Lord God, it is you who have made the heavens and the earth by your great power and by your outstretched arm. Nothing is too hard for you. You show steadfast love to thousands, but you repay the guilt of fathers to the children after them. O great and mighty God, whose name is the Lord of hosts great in counsel and mighty indeed whose eyes are open to all the ways of the children of man rewarding each one according to his ways and according to the fruit of his deeds god's eyes this mighty god there there's no darkness that his eyes can't see through He's the mighty God. All of the dealings that have gone on, he has seen. He he is the mighty God. There is no darkness that can conceal and, and keep him from seeing. He is the mighty God. He's described this way in Psalm 24. This is the last Old Testament passage if you want to follow with me to there. But I'm just trying to make the point. This this mighty God, this Messiah that's going to be coming, he's this God of the Old Testament that is referred to as this mighty God who accomplishes his purposes. Psalm 24, just speaking of this mighty God. Verse 7, lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty, The Lord, mighty in battle, lift up your heads, O gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. Who is this king of glory? The Lord of hosts, meaning angel armies, essentially. The Lord of hosts, he is the king of glory. There is no enemy too strong for the mighty God. There is no circumstance too tough for the mighty God. There are no problems too big for the mighty God. He is the mighty God, meaning he is the strong one. He is the mightiest. God is described as the mighty God of the people of Israel, and he proved his might. Now we look at the sun. And just flip with me to the Gospel of Mark. Mark is a fabulous gospel to read through, just action, 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 movement, all these interesting uh, events in the life of Jesus. But you go to the Gospel of Mark and you see this same command and might from the life of Jesus, right? We go to Mark chapter 4, starting in verse 35, on that day, look at all the things Jesus commands and has control of. Mark chapter 4, this is page 998 of your Pew Bible. Mark chapter 4, starting in verse 35. On that day, when evening had come, he said to them, Let us go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd, they took him with them in their boat, just as he was, and the other boats were with them. And a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat, so that the boat was already filling. But he was in the stern, asleep on the cushion." And they woke him and said to him, "'Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing?' And he awoke, and what does he do? He awoke, and he rebuked the wind, and said to the sea, "'Peace, be still,' and the wind ceased, and there's great calm. He said to them, "'Why are you so afraid? "'Have you still no faith?' And they, then, then they're really afraid, "'and they were filled with great fear.'" and said to one another, Who is this? Who then is this that even wind and the sea obey him? Mark, recording for us the, the feeling you have when you're confronted with something so mighty that they tell wind and waves and storms to cease and the, the water goes like glass, essentially. Just boom. You ever been out in nature and just everything cuts off? I mean, there's still no leaves are rustling. There's no ripples on the water. Peace be still. It's, it's still... Jesus shows up, he has command of nature. You look on down in chapter 5, we've got the healing of a a demoniac. You go on down to the woman with the issue of blood and Jairus' daughter. We see that he has command over nature. He has command over the spiritual forces of the world. Command over demons. He has command over disease. He has command over death itself. And you flip on back to Mark chapter 9, and you see that Jesus has command over future events. 9, verses 30 and 32. They went on from there and passed through Galilee. He did not want anyone to know, for he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days, he will rise. But they did not understand the saying and were afraid to ask him. You think about knowing what was going to happen with Judas, knowing what was going to happen with Peter, knowing where the upper room was going to be prepared, knowing about the, the donkey that he was, the colt that he was going to ride in on, on, the, on triumphant uh, Palm, Palm Sunday, the triumphal entry. He has all of this command. Why? He is the mighty God. He is the God of the Old Testament moving. He is the God who has control over all of the, the hearts of the kings or are, are, are flexible in his hands. He controls them, points them where he wants them to go. He is God and there is no beside him. And then this son, this, this Messiah shows up born Christmas Day. The incarnation he puts on flesh. And who is he? He is the mighty God. Which brings us to this fascinating question. What is does the mighty god do with his might i mean okay so here is this here is this god has created the heavens and the heavens of the heavens and the earth and all that is in it mighty in all of his power to do exactly what he wants to do command over nature and demons and disease and death and everything and you have to ask what would you do with all that power I mean, we don't have all that power, but think about what little power you do have. What do you do? I mean, you can look at your checkbook as the easiest way to diagnose this. Money, in some sense, is power. What do you do with the money that you have? Well, that's where do you do with your power? And, and it's, a, it's a clear indicator of, uh, just, of uh, just, it's a good question to ask. When power comes to you, what do you do with it? And so many of us, When we have power like that, what does that power go towards? Ourselves. We use the power to look out for ourselves and to do what is best for us. What does God do with all this might? The fact that God is mighty doesn't really help us at all. The fact that Jesus would be called the mighty God with the mighty God would put on flesh doesn't really help us at all because there's no guarantee that you meet someone or you become to know this person with all this might that they're going to do anything for you. (laughs) I mean, how, how often is that a guarantee? We, we're entering the wonderful political season already where we get tons of promises about all the mighty things people will do for you with their might that we all hopefully now, I mean, I haven't been in the electoral cycle for too long, but realize that most of those promises never end up being able to be fulfilled. But there's using all this promises of might, but how often does this might actually ever play out for, any, for anyone the, the phrase power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely. Surely you've, you've heard that. It's a truism that is verified in our world. We look around and we see this power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely. Everywhere we look, we see people in power who ultimately work for themselves at the expense of others. And what happens when they get even more might? They become even more elevated and life becomes more and more centered around them at the expense of others. And it become power, power corrupting and corrupting. The, the stronger they get, the more corrupt it becomes. That's why every movie you see it has a, a hero of valor, someone who has this power and they use it sacrificially to serve someone else. It's why it's so moving to us when we watch a movie, we hear a storyline of someone sacrificing themselves for the benefit of another because we recognize something amazing has happened there (laughs) because that isn't the natural flow. That isn't our natural response. It's to serve the other when we've been given this power. It's why it's such a powerful storyline. It's a statement on on the true sinfulness and fallenness of man. We're all corrupted by our nature. And by choice, and we're bent in upon ourselves. And our natural state is selfishness. Our natural state is rebellion. We believe that we are the center of the universe, and that rightness exists and is determined by how we feel about it. And so when fallen man overcomes that selfishness, that self-centeredness, and lives, for something, lives for something outside of himself, that's valor, and we celebrate it, and we should. It's the common grace of God breaking into our worlds, to our world. But what do we see with this mighty God? What does he do with his might? So if power corrupts it, absolute power corrupts, absolutely, what does this mighty God do with his might? Well, he becomes a man. The mighty God enters into his creation in order to rescue his people. And now this is incredible because unlike fallen man, God is the absolute ruler. God deserves every ounce of worship you could ever cook up. God deserves every Every ounce of your praise, every ounce of your glory, He deserves all of it. All of your adoration, all of your service. God deserves every work of service you could perform from now until infinity, until the end of it all. He deserves every act of your service. He truly is the center of all existence, not us. He really is the center of all existence. And what does he do, this one with absolute power, what does he do, the one truly deserving of all attention and all praise, he lays it aside, puts on flesh, becomes man. The mighty God becomes man. That's the reality that's spoken of there in Philippians chapter 2, Paul writing that hymn of praise, recording it down for us, writing it new, we're not sure, but It says this in Philippians chapter 2, verse 5, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, Now, that word there in Philippians, he's not, Jesus isn't trying to attain godhood. He has it. He is one in being with the Father. He's a separate person, but he's one in being with the Father. But he doesn't consider that godness something to be held on to, is that term, grasped. But he lets it go. He empties himself. He empties himself, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, But emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Jesus did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped or to be held on to. He was in eternity past with God, one in being with God. And he condescends to take on flesh, even becoming obedient to the point of death on a cross. The mighty God becomes man. John Calvin, in his commentary on Isaiah, I was reading this week, he used this illustration. I'm gonna share it with you here and then kind of elucidate or expand it a little bit. John Calvin, in his commentary on Isaiah, says this. He says, "'A man may happen to be drowned in a small stream, "'and yet, though he fall into an open sea, "'if he had got hold of a plank,' He might have been rescued and brought to shore. In like manner, the slightest calamities will overwhelm us if we are deprived of God's favor. But if we relied on the word of God, we might come out of the heaviest calamity safe safe and uninjured. I love the imagery here, speaking of the danger of falling into a, a small stream and the danger that that could be. If you're impaired or something happens, you can uh, you know, fall in a bucket of water, I suppose, technically, and, and have it be quite a calamity if you have no remedy. But if, a pers- or if you're impaired or are in trouble, but you can fall into the broadest of oceans, and if you have something to hang on to, you're in far better shape than the person stuck in a small stream with nothing. That's the imagery that he's trying to say here, but I think we can go a step further with this illustration. Smallest bucket of water is dangerous to everyone, but even in the large ocean, if we only have something floating alongside of us to hold on to, we have hope of making it to safety. But what do we see in the incarnation? What do we see in the mighty God becoming man? We're the maker of the oceans. We're out lost at sea. And what happens? The maker of the oceans comes to swim with us. The maker of the oceans shows up and you're you're out in in the, 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 the storms of life. Drownings are threatening and you look over and the one who made the seas is there beside you and you say, well, what are you doing here? And he says, I'm here to save you. I'm here to rescue you. The one who makes the oceans enters into it with mankind. He comes into humanity for what purpose? To save them. Not only were you just hanging on to some driftwood, but the maker of it all, the mighty God becomes man. He puts on flesh and for what purpose? To save humanity. It's why the incarnation is so incredible. Think about what it says about God and his willingness to get involved in the very intimate reality of your life. This mighty God who is able to conquer and accomplish whatever he would desire, I mean any I mean we don't have the imagination for it. Think of all that he could have set his power upon. This mighty God who is able to conquer and accomplish whatever he desires has decided to use that might to put on flesh and rescue sinners all that he could have done what does he do he becomes a man so that as we know he lives the righteous life you should have lived I should have lived and had no hope of doing he lives the righteous life we should have lived he dies the death that we deserve on a cruel Roman cross suffering under the wrath of God and our place condemned he stood sealed our pardon with his blood And he rises from the grave three days later. He accomplishes all of this. Think about what it says, that God and all of his mightiness takes that mightiness and becomes man to save you. To make a way of forgiveness, reconciliation, adoption into his family. What does this mean? And it means we should never look at our lives in the same way again. If you are Christ, you are not alone. If you are Christ, you are not alone. If you are Christ, there is not, if you are Christ's, not if you're Christ. If you are Christ's, if you are His There is not an element of your life that is beyond his reach. He's the maker of the ocean. He's the maker of it all. There's not an element of your life that is beyond his reach. If you are his, there is not an iota of your reality, not the smallest part of your reality, that Christ will not work for your ultimate good. what he's promised to do. And this is not just the promise of some man. This is the promise of the mighty God made man. Your salvation, though it likely will be through many trials and tribulation, your salvation is secure in Christ. How can we know this? Because Jesus is the mighty God. He is the mighty God made man. This tells us that the creator of the universe, the sovereign Lord of history and time itself, used that might to do something incredible to make us his own. He redeems us out of our sinful state through faith in Christ. He is the mighty God who is with us, who is for us, and who will finally secure us. What does he do with his might? becomes man to save men. As we are in Advent, we celebrate and think about this first coming of Christ. It's also time to live in the reality that there's a second coming yet on the horizon. When this mighty God made man will return and will finally consummate all things. And all those who are his will know the fullness of this might that has not stayed far off with his power, but as incarnated, has become flesh to save sinners. May we know it this Advent season. Let's pray. Father, give us eyes to see and hearts brought to life in this reality. What a wonder it is. I... I look at my life, God, and think I do so many selfish, foolish things with my itty-bitty might. (laughs) And you are the God with infinite might. And how do you spend it? You spend it to save me. You spend it to purchase my forgiveness. You spend it that I might be secure in you forever. Father, may we all know this, see this, and rejoice deeply in it this season. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.